this uh, Bible reading, starting at one, uh, the subject, uh, the man Christ Jesus, revealed in second chapters. We're going to start at Leviticus 2, and our, our brother Alan Summer from Mayfield, Scotland, will look after that Bible reading. So we trust that the Lord will draw near and give him help, and that we might have a profitable time. Now shall we turn please to the book of Leviticus in chapter 2. The book of Leviticus, please, and chapter 2. And we'll read the chapter together. And when any will offer a meat offering unto the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil upon it, and put frankincense thereon. And he shall bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests, and he shall take there out his handful of the flour thereof, and of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar to be an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And the remnant of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his sons. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. And if thou bring an oblation of a meat offering bacon in the oven, it shall be unleavened cakes of fine flour mingled with oil or unleavened wafers anointed with oil. And if thy oblation be a meat offering bacon in a pan, it shall be of fine flour, unleavened, mingled with oil. Thou shalt part it in pieces, and pour oil thereon. It is a meat offering. And if thy oblation be a meat offering bacon in the frying pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil, and thou shalt bring the meat offering that is made of these things unto the Lord. And when it is presented unto the priest, he shall bring it unto the altar, and the priest shall take from the meat offering a memorial thereof, and shall burn it upon the altar. It is an offering made by fire of a sweet savour unto the Lord. And that which is left of the meat offering shall be Aaron's and his son's. It is a thing most holy of the offerings of the Lord made by fire. No meat offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor any honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. As for the oblation of the first fruits, ye shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet savour. And every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. <clears throat> Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from thy meat offering, with all thy offerings thou shalt offer salt. And if thou offer a meat offering of thy first fruits unto the Lord, thou shalt offer for the meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn, dried by the fire, even corn beaten out of full ears. And thou shalt put oil upon it, and lay frankincense thereon. It is a meat offering. And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof, it is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Now that's all that we read from God's good word. Now one of the startling things that uh, you find when you begin to give yourself to the task of the study of scriptures is that it does seem to me respectfully that there are a lot of men that write about the Bible that have not divine life in them. I know that's maybe a startling statement, but I've read quite a few books just in preparation for these meetings 
And they managed to make their way through Leviticus 2, and what startles me about it all is this, is that in not one page, not one line, not one syllable, do they see Christ. And I think if they can't see Christ in the meat offering, then there's a fundamental problem, probably with their salvation, and if not with their salvation, certainly with their theology. Now, that is not to say, however, that the only thing that we ought to see in the meat offering is Christ. What I want to do, just really by way of introduction, and I know it will not really be the theme of these readings, is to give you some keys that you can use to unlock uh, these chapters. I have found them a great blessing. Um, I owe a great debt to the brethren at Gorgie, who about maybe 15 years ago, I think it is now, surprised me one evening with a telephone call and said, would you come and give us a week on the Levitical offerings? Now, up until that point in time, I must confess, I had never really given myself to the study of the offerings, but having accepted the invitation, I made it my business to get down to a study of them. And I I have to say that it was one of the best things that ever happened to me. I think they are enriching, uh, the Levitical offerings. They enlarge your appreciation of Christ. They are, I think, the key to the New Testament in great measure. I simply do not think that you can really understand the theology of the prison epistles or the Corinthian epistles without a solid grasp of principally the burnt offering and the sin and trespass offering. So, I do commend this chapter and the section of Leviticus that it belongs to to you. There are lots of young men and young sisters here And I would like to encourage you to listen to the Bible reading today, listen to the comments, take away what you learn, and give yourself to the study of the offerings. It is a great encouragement to worship. It is, I think, the key to unlocking a lot of the New Testament. And I am absolutely certain that your soul will be enriched if you give yourself to it. Now, just a word or two of general introduction, just to provide you with some of the keys that I mentioned. The first thing to say about these offerings is the most basic thing of all, and that is this, that they were principally a thank offering by an Israelite who had been blessed under his covenant with God, and he came to to give God thanks and express his appreciation by this offering. Now, my brother David correctly pointed out in the ministry yesterday that the Israelites and the nation of Israel were an agricultural people, and their life really revolved around the agricultural cycle of the harvests. And I think once you get locked into your mind when the barley harvest is, and when the wheat harvest is, and when a little later on in the year uh, the grapes are gathered in, along with the oil, the olive oil, you can see how uh, the the offerings uh, synchronize with uh, these people who lived off the land with their cattle, with their lambs, with their goats, with their turtle doves, Uh, with uh, the wheat harvest and the barley harvest, and all these things were the blessings that God had committed into their hand for their own material good and their spiritual blessing. And when you read this chapter, the first thing probably that you should have in mind, the word uh, really here, meat offering, is primarily the idea of a gift. The, The worshiper coming with his gift to God, And I think at its most basic level, what he was doing was saying, look, I have been blessed. And here's a little token of my appreciation in the memorial of what you have given me. And I want to hand it back to you. Then on a second level, 
and I think this is missed all the time in ministry in, on the offerings, is the practical side. I'm a great lover of practical theology. And the offerings are a great source of practical teaching. Because in the offerings, what you discover are the standards God expects of me. And as you read down through this chapter, you will find, for example, in the symbolism associated with 11, that God does not desire evil and wickedness to be found in the hearts of his people. You discover in the salt, for example, that what he desires from his people is those whose speech can be relied upon. There is something savoury about it. You discover in the absence of the honey that he does not want people with honeyed lips and honeyed tongues to approach his altar. He seeks what is true. He seeks what is genuine. He seeks what is edifying. And you could go along those lines quite profitably. But of course all these things are designed, and this is the third and probably the most prominent feature of the offerings, all these things were realised fully and perfectly in Christ. What he seeks from you is what he found in him. What he longs for in people like you and I is what he found in sufficiency in Christ. And we're going to work our way down through these offerings and we're going to see that in the realization of the offering, the gift offering in Christ, Jehovah at last found one who was in every possible sense fine wheat. He found one who when he was put upon the altar of suffering, the frankincense that had been lying there amidst of wheat, suddenly gave off an odour, a sweet odour, that filled the whole of the tabernacle court and ascended up to God. And there was delight for God in the death of Christ. In Christ and in his ministry there was salt. You know, you will not find, I don't think at any stage or at any point, in all the Lord's ministry, in all the ample record we have of what he said, any point at which you could, you could say in the slightest sense, he is guilty of flattery. Our Lord was not a flatterer. What was characteristic of him was not the honey, but the salt. He didn't, as we, you know, we're awful people, they call it massaging egos. Have you heard of that expression? And I hear quite a lot about it in the meetings. You see people trying in the Bible reading to massage an ego. Say how wonderful the man is and how, how great his grasp of Scripture is. You know, the thing I love about the Lord is he never did any of that. He spoke directly. He spoke truly. There was a salt in his speech. So that is perhaps just a word uh, directed at my brethren here. I don't want you to flatter me. I want you just to tell me what you think. Don't tell me what you think I want to hear, but tell me what you believe. And that is salt. It preserves, unlike the honey, which corrupts. So we're going to see that in Christ, all these things were brought to a full and perfect appreciation. Now the last little practical point I want to make in thinking about the offerings is that I think you must never lose sight of for whom they were intended. Now, in a, in a sense, they were all intended for God. And that is true. But if you look at the offerings 
it is clear that as between the offerings, and there are five in number, this is the second, the meat offering, three sweet savour offerings, uh, the burnt offering, chapter 1, the meat offering, chapter 2, the peace offering, chapter 3, all sweet savour. This one uh, was one that was particularly directed at the priests. The burnt offering was almost exclusively for God. In fact, if you read chapter 1, I think you would come to the conclusion that it was all for God. But if you're a careful reader of Scripture and read on a little bit into the law of the burnt offering and a little bit on past that, you will discover that the priest had the skin of the bullock. So there was a little thing for the priest in it all. But the thing completely turns on its head when you come to the meat offering. And what one finds here is that, uh, what, what, what the Bible calls a memorial portion. That which brought to remembrance. And we'll think, no doubt, in the Bible reading of who was doing the remembering. Was it God being reminded? Or was it the man that brought the memorial being reminded? Probably both. And he brought that little handful and he placed it on the altar. And the rest was for the priest. Now, interestingly enough, this is just a little... uh, point I want to make. I want to get out on the table now because it may become an issue later on. I, I don't think that you can really understand these five offerings and this one in particular without appreciating that this is the offering for the ordinary man. It's of a soul, of a man. In chapter 1 it's if it's the word there is the Adam, the male and female, if a man comes. And these are to be distinguished from the compulsory offerings. So you see, when you come over to the balance of the book, for example, in chapter 12, you'll find that a woman, after childbirth, was required by the law to come with a variety of offerings. In chapter 14, you'll find a leper who is cleansed. He had to come. The law required them to come. You come to Leviticus 23, and it wasn't so much an event in the life of an individual as the calendar of which we heard a little bit yesterday. And when Passover came, there was no option in the matter. The nation came up. In the middle of the year, again, the nation came up. God required them to come. Again, at the end of the year, no option. God required them, and they came up to Jerusalem. We heard, again, a little bit about that yesterday. Now, I I think that these chapters, 12, 14, 16, 21, are valuable aids to the interpretation of 1 through 7, but they're not to be confused with them. For example, uh, you will find uh, that in some of the meat offerings that are required as a matter of compulsion, the expressed detail is given about the size of the offering. How many ephahs of flour? How many hins of oil? And so on. The drink offering is required. But that detail is entirely lacking from Leviticus 2. You're not told about any of these things. And I judge that the simple reason for that is this, and you can come back at me and tell me I'm wrong, use a bit of salt in your speech and tell me that I've misunderstood things. But my understanding of it is this, is that in these offerings you don't so much have offerings that are brought as a matter of compulsion or religious necessity. What you have here in these chapters are individuals who come 
of their own free will to give to God. And and nowhere in chapter 2 is there any prescription as to how large or how small that meat offering must be. Now here's the point. I've taken a little bit of time to get around, around to it. The balance of the offering, leaving aside the memorial, it went to the priests. It was the food of the priest. And aren't we glad about that? Christ is still the food of a priestly man. And the fine flour, and the oil, and the salt, and the frankincense, though that was given exclusively to God, these are all speaking of that in which a priestly man delights. What he yearns over, what he longs over, what he, what he desires in his life. And they are found in the meat offering. And that was all given to the priest. Now, of course, it varies. You come to the peace offering, and the thing changes again. It's largely the offeror that has the benefit of that offering. The fat and the blood for Jehovah, and the balance largely for the offerer. Come over to the sin offering, and the thing changes again. And so we need to be careful to see that who the offerings are directed towards varies from offering to offering. So the point is simply this. If I could just recap, and I'll sit down just in a minute or two. Point number one. At the most basic level, this offering was an expression of thankfulness by a man who had been blessed by God. He had in his hands that which God had given him, and he gave it back in a memorial. Point number two. I I, I know, I think, that actually, in this dispensation, we're far more intelligent about these offerings than they were back then. I, I don't know for sure, but it seems to me there's a very limited amount of data available to the offerer then to interpret the purpose of what he was doing. But not so you and I. We have a far deeper understanding of these offerings because we have that of which they spoke. We have Christ. And we can understand them in the light of the Gospels and in the light of the Epistles. But back then, I don't think they had that. But I think they did at least discern this. They discerned what God's standards for them were. Third point, they spoke of Christ Last point, the meat offering was there to support the priesthood. And with those four keys, I think, uh, in your pocket, uh, if you go home this evening, whatever is said in the Bible reading uh, today, you can unlock uh, some of the the beauties and the glories of this lovely chapter. I'll just say this, that I see threes everywhere in this chapter. It divides into three. There is uh, the offering that begins at verse number 1 and moves down to verse number 3, which is effectively a loose offering. The ingredients of the offerings probably bought in a a basket. They certainly did that in Exodus 29, brought in a basket to the gate of the tabernacle. In the second section, it's not so much the ingredients that make up the offering. These are baked offerings in cake or wafer form. And in my estimation, that first phase speaks primarily about the life of Christ from his childhood through to the commencement of his public ministry. In my judgment, and it is just simply that, that the second phase running from verse 4 down to verse 10 where we're introduced to an oven and pierced cakes and wafers are broken. So what we're learning there is that there were three years, three and a half years of our Lord's ministry where he was subject to intense persecution. 
And then, and this is where perhaps you may differ from me, I don't know, that in the last phase where we in, were introduced to the green ears of corn down in verse number 14, my, my judgment is that this is Christ in his eternal freshness. The first fruits have been brought in. They are waved before the Lord, consistent with Leviticus 23, and not burnt on the altar. But out of those first fruits are beaten green ears of corn. And I think they speak of the eternal humanity of Christ, in its virility, in its freshness, in its power for God. But that is just simply how I see it, and I would suspect that there will be other brethren here that maybe don't see it that way, but that is how it appeals to me. At any rate, with those introductory remarks, we can get now down to a study of this chapter, and I look forward to hearing the comments of the brethren. Just perhaps say a brief word just to get the discussion going. I oftentimes think that in, in a way Leviticus is like uh, the Acts of the Apostles in this respect only that you could read straight on from the book of Exodus and on into the book of Leviticus in the same way that you can read from the Gospel of Luke straight into the Acts of the Apostles. It opens up with these words, and the Lord called. And it seems to me that that is just a continuation of what you have at the end of Exodus where the tabernacle is reared, a year has gone by since they have exited Egypt, the tabernacle is ready to function, and so at the start of Leviticus chapter 1, leading on into chapter 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 and 7, what you have here is God giving instructions to his people as to how they should approach him. The tabernacle is built, everything is in place, but how are the people to come? And in these chapters he explains to them that there are offerings that will uh, be associated with their approach. That's why you have the approach offering, the idea of being admitted into God's presence. And these chapters, and the meat offering is, is the second of uh, the five offerings here, that were there to enable the people of God to make their approach to God in this wonderful new structure called the tabernacle, the right, right of which had never been seen before and probably will never be seen again. Now, if you have any comments just to open up the subject of the offerings, I'd be delighted to hear from you now. So, <coughs> so these offerings, brother, I'll, you don't see them so much, I'm speaking from our aspect, telling a sinner how to be saved. It's a person who is already in covenant relationship with God. We don't start at Leviticus 1. We don't start at Leviticus 5. We start at Exodus 12. Amen. So we're already in covenant relationship with God. Not a sinner looking for forgiveness. It's a worshipper expressing his gratitude. I, I could wholeheartedly... I remember teaching that once, David, in a hall that I will uh, not name. And there were about ten heads shaking vigorously in disagreement in the audience. But I haven't changed my mind. I don't think that Leviticus 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, etc. have got anything to do with what brings a man in to covenant relationship with God. They're a means of maintaining communion. So as First John is really the epistle that we look to here. These are men, bear in mind this, that, that, that some of the heaviest indictments in Scripture 
in Amos 5 and Isaiah 1 are against those that brought offerings but did so in unbelief. And he says, I hate them. I can't get away with them. And he, he banishes them from his courts. So what we have to understand is there was no inherent virtue in the offering. It didn't do anything for the man. The man's faith is what justified him. But these offerings enabled him to maintain communion with his God. Could you give us a comment on the order of the offerings, please? Yeah. Well, they are in what they call a moral order, or a spiritual order is maybe the better way of putting it. It begins with the burnt offering, which is the offering that is preeminently for the glory of God. We then move in this offering to one that's preeminently for the priest. And then lastly, we move to an offering that is preeminently for the offeror. And then we come to the sin and trespass offerings, which are those that are designed specifically to deal with our transgressions of the law. Now, this is the point I want to make. That is their proper order. When you come to uh, the implementation of these offerings, in the balance of the book of Leviticus, the order changes. And you have the sin offering first, the trespass offering, and then the burnt offering. And that's for one solid, simple, clear reason. That before a man can ever worship and approach God's presence acceptably, his sin needs to be put away. Brother Sam. Would you connect the meat offering or the flame flower in any way with what the Lord said in John's Gospel, chapter 12, except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die, it abideth alone. And if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. Or, do we disassociate what we have in these offerings from that aspect of the death of Christ and see it coming in in another way in relation to the life of Christ and his public ministry prior to his going out to Calvary. Well, I I see a connection, Sam, but I I don't think it's what you call a perfect match. The the corn of wheat that dies uh, is principally an idea of the death of that corn of wheat with a view to life being produced. Whereas I think in the fine flower here, I agree probably it is wheat, as opposed to barley. But I think the focus here is not so much on his death with a view to life being produced as the character of Christ in its fineness. thought that these in their origin would maybe connect better with the incarnation. Mm-hmm. And the Lord is seen there as coming, being found in fashion as a man, mm-hmm. different entirely from what we have in John 12. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. I mean, I, I don't know what, what you think yourself, but I had connected in my mind this opening section where you have the, the fine flour and the oil and the salt uh, with that uh, phase, if you will, that period in the Lord's life and ministry uh, beginning at Bethlehem and leading on up to him going out into public service uh, uh, as recorded for us in the Gospels. So, so j- just to go back to that issue that you raised, Brother Earl, about the order, uh, just speaking in general terms, again from our perspective, 
We first of all think about the Lord Jesus as a sacrifice. Satisfied God, his precious blood was shed. That's Leviticus 1. Everything upon the altar, and he died for me and met the claims of God. But then, having appreciated what he secured for me in his death, I begin to take a look at the character of the one who did that. So I first of all value his work and then think about the person. So the meal offering follows the burnt offering. Is that the general idea? These are not randomly strewn on the face of scripture. I I, I cannot accept that there is not a design to it. And I I would judge that as you have said that there is an order uh, uh, as between the burnt offering in in chapter 1 I just say something I, I believe with all my heart. There are people that would say to you that the idea of sin is lacking in the burnt offering and it's all the divine side and there's no thought of sin. I can't understand that. <laughs> cannot understand it. Because in chapter 1 it says in verse number 4 it shall make atonement for him. Now what is atonement to do with in scripture if it is not to do with sin. So I, I, I do not see Leviticus 1 as um, being so exclusively connected with the divine side as to excise from it any thought of sin. I think we need to grasp that the, the greatest thing that ever happened for the glory of God, I, I think, was that his son dealt with it for his honour on Calvary. It's true to say, Alan, wouldn't it, though, that um, you, no, no, no record in Scripture of a burnt offering being offered without a meal offering. We do have, in chapter 4, an unusual offering in terms of the trespass offering, which was meal only. But in terms of all of the, all of the, all of the references throughout our, our Bible, number 15 has been mentioned in your opening remarks, that we cannot separate the death of Christ from the life of Christ. If it's in the burnt offering we see Christ meeting all of the divine affections in its entirety and all for the heart of God, here is a bloodless offering. And we say to the young believers, this is a great chapter for worship. Great chapter. Here you're going to find lessons about the person of Christ and his manhood. But you cannot separate the life of Christ from the death of Christ. I agree with that. It is true that if you go into the set offerings, later on, you always find what are combinations of offerings. And it is true that the meat offering tends to be linked to the burnt offering. In fact, when you come to Numbers 15, difficult to know with certainty when Numbers 15 uh, was uh, given by God to I suspect probably at the midpoint in the wilderness rather than just before they enter the land you find there that the meat offering as you pointed out Craig and the drink offering are all brought in uh, although they are lacking in this chapter so I, I accept that it is, it is not a scriptural thing to do to try and separate out the death of Christ from the life of Christ because the great thing about chapter 2 is that it is his life. Mm-hmm. No, no droplet of blood is shed in Leviticus 2. So, and ju- just in connection with that, in a general way, and I know you're not in chapter 1, but you hinted at it, <clears throat> there were five different forms, or five different animals, that could be for the burnt offering. Yeah. The, the ox, and the lamb, and the goat, and the turtle dove, and the pigeon. Mm. There were five different forms possible for the meal offering. Yeah. You mentioned those in your opening. Yeah. In the burnt offering, you had the flesh. Mm. In the meal offering, you had the flour. Mm. In the burnt offering, you had the fat. Mm-hmm. In the meal offering, you had the frankincense. In the burnt offering, you had the blood. 
in the meal offering you have the oil. So there's a close correspondence, a close analogy, and just what you have said, the person who did die on the cross, he had a life that exactly matched and measured the work that he did. There's a correspondence between his life and his death. I completely agree with that. Cannot understand brethren that think that it is possible to be occupied wholly in worship for God and yet not be appreciative of the fact that he put away sin. The two, the two sit together. You cannot separate the two out from... But the big point you've made there, David, and it's, it's, it's again key to the understanding, because you will not find a chapter in the New Testament that gives you a handbook to the offerings. There's hard work involved in their understanding. You need to get to grips with the epistles and, and, and work out what it is that gives them their distinctive character. And I think the distinctive thing about Leviticus 2 and the, the gift offering, if you'll allow me to call it that, is the fact that no blood is shed. And we, we learn from later on in Leviticus that it, it's the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Brother Alan, the burnt offering here is presented in Leviticus 1. We don't partake of anything you've said. The priest got the skin, but we don't eat of it. But the association with the meal offering allows us to come in, for we have a portion for ourselves. Yeah. There are other offerings, like the Passover, yeah. where we do eat of the flesh, but yeah. not in the burnt offering, because this is mainly for God. Yeah. And I do think that the atonement that you've mentioned in chapter 1 and verse 4, it's atonement with a view to acceptance, not an atonement with a view to forgiveness. Amen. So it's us accepted in the beloved. Yeah. But we find it very difficult to feast on Leviticus 1 because of the depth of understanding. Mm-hmm. But we can't feed on Leviticus 2. Yeah. That's, that's excellent, Brian, because... The atonement, has, as you put it, is, is from the divine side. What did he get from the death of Christ? Mm-hmm. When you come over to Leviticus 4, 5, and on into Bitten 6, when you're dealing with the sin and the trespass offering, same language you used again, atonement, but clearly it shall be forgiven him. It has in view the offerer's forgiveness. So I appreciate that comment very much. Now perhaps, since I do have an obligation to move things along a little bit, Can we get some uh, comments, uh, just if we can deal with the opening three verses as a section, on what teaching that we might find in the fine flower? Because if you ask me what in this chapter warms my my heart, it's the fine flower. And there are a lot of beautiful teaching in it. Now, I'm sure you have some help to give me in that connection. Just for a second before you go to that, brother, and you alluded to it in your opening this expression, and just a, a, I'd want to hear, maybe if you care to elaborate, when any man, yeah. or verse, when any, verse 1, when any, you notice in the margin, you said soul, yeah. when a soul, what, what's the significance again, just to remind me, you did say it, but just to, to catch it, so different to Adam in mm. chapter 1, now a soul, what do you think is really the significance of that here? What, what, what I had thought was that the, a lot of the other offerings that you encounter in the book of, book of Leviticus, that the person that had to bring it had to do so as a matter of obligation. And a, a defined category of people had to bring that offering. Mm-hmm. Whereas the soul, I think, is a very general term. There's a spontaneity about it. Yeah. 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 So if, if, if there was uh, an Israelite who... Uh, had a desire to go up to meet with God and to express his appreciation of what he had done for him and what 
how much God had worked in his life. He didn't need to wait, I don't think, to one of the set feasts. This chapter gives him all the encouragement he needs to come on his own free will. You can come over to the law of the peace offering, for example. You find a voluntary offering, thanksgiving, a vow. So things can motivate a man to come to the, come to the altar apart from the feast. I, and I, I see exactly that and I, even, I, I wonder is there a spirituality mm-hmm. and exercise mm-hmm. in connection with, when it's the burnt offering he shall bring mm-hmm. he shall lay his hand he shall do this his mm-hmm. you get to the peace offering he mm-hmm. he his you get to the sin offering again he and his and they and they and they when you get here look at verse number 4 thou yeah. thy Thou, yeah. God's actually speaking to this man. Yeah. So there seems to be a, a close connection of communion between the offerer and the Lord to whom he's offering. His very soul yeah. is involved in this. But just to carry that on, David, if you get down to verse 14, thou shalt offer for the meat yeah. offering. Verse 15, and thou shalt put oil upon it. So there is that uh, intimacy. And that's ne- never done in any of the other four. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I think of that individual exercise of the offerer as that lesson for us all. There's an individual exercise to come and bring. I'm conscious that the, the flower, and we're going to come into this, that when you come to later on in their Bible, that Israel um, in Ezekiel 16, they weren't using the flower as an offering. They were using it in their, for their own ends, for their own prosperity purposes, and they were condemned of God. In Revelation chapter 18, what's going to mark Babylon is using these things for their own ends. They were using what God had given them. There's a little reference in 1 Chronicles 29, and verse 14, and it says these words, For all things come of thee, and of thine own have we given thee. So they're giving back to God. And there's no fine flower in the desert. They're going to have to find it from another climate. They're going to have to find it from another place. And so there's exercise. And I take it that there's a principle then about us as offerers to be exercised about learning about the manhood of Christ. We might have something to give back to God. Now, can, can we please get a little bit of help on the fine flower? I'll, I'll tell you what I think, and then you can react. Could I ask a question? Surely, John. Sure. Have you any preference uh, as to the name of this offering, the meat, meal, some call it a grain offering, some call it a cereal offering? Have you any personal preference? I have a very strong preference for the gift offering, because that is what the Hebrew word minka means. It's the gift. It's sometimes used just directly to translate a gift, you know, that's given for a secular purpose. I mean, I know what the translators have done in order to try and give us a sense of it, um, uh, they, they well, meat, meat is the old word for, yeah, for food. It is indeed. Uh, yeah. My grandma in Peterhead used to, used to shout the, out the door at me, Have you had your meat? And she didn't mean by that, Had you had the steak? Or a, or a, a pork pie? What, she said, you, Have you had your food? And that is what the word meant. And some have retranslated that as meal offering yeah. to get the idea that these are cereal offerings. But my, my own sense of this is that it's, it's the principal idea behind it is a man coming to give to God. So we'll, we'll keep old Jacob when he said, take the man down a present. Mm-hmm. That's the same word. Same word. Ah, so it's, a, it's a present exactly. giving something. That, that's how I understand it. I'm anxious to get to the fine <laughs> flower. <laughs> Brian, take us to the fine flower, please. This is flower. As far as we are concerned, to produce fineness in us, it requires the upper and the nether millstones. But when we come to the Lord Jesus, it wasn't circumstances made him fine. Amen. He was inherently fine. Amen. 
And that's a big point in that. God, God is at work in our lives, refining us and making us what he desires us to be. He never needed to do that with the Lord. He was always, ever and always, that which delighted his heart. And that's why I think you don't reach back beyond the opening paragraph here. You take this emblem of Christ as the one that is the fine flower, and that is what he is. Now, can I just say the two things that I had in mind? And I don't think you can disassociate them. I think fine is the quality. Okay? He's, he's heaven's best. Can we say amen to that? He is heaven's best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And more than that, there is nothing rough or coarse no. about Christ. No. You could, that is what disposes me to think that this is probably wheat that's in view. It's the very finest of the grains. It's not explicit here that it is wheat, but I think probably that's what it is. And, you know, there's a lot of roughness about me. I'll be absolutely honest with you now. There's a bran and the kernel. You know, you, you wouldn't need to know, there are a lot of you here who wouldn't know me, but if you did know me for a day or two, you wouldn't be long in finding out that I can be awkward. If you want further detail about that, I'll give you my phone number and you can speak to my wife. She'll tell you all about it. I can be awkward. But Christ couldn't. There was a fineness about him that set him apart. And is there not too, uh, Brother Alan, the thought of consistency? Because it's not fine flour unless it's all fine. Yeah. Uh, we would, even greater men than you, we'd be afraid to look at them too closely because we'd find something yeah. that jarred. But the priest could put in his hand and he would never find a coarseness. Yeah. It was all fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we, we, these Bible readings, I think, David, are, are really primarily designed to let, give us a glimpse of him. I mean, we can talk about these and we can discuss how the... But what, we, what I would judge the brethren here in Lurgan really want to come out of these Bible readings as we go through the four chapters is that they might have a bigger appreciation of him. And what more noble and laudable an object could there be for a Bible reading than to enlarge our appreciation of him? He was the fine flower. Just what you mentioned about, about it being wheat and flour... I, I, I agree with that completely. Later down the chapter, barley is mentioned as yeah. a, an exception to the rule. Yeah. And the first time that this word fine flour occurs in the Old Testament is Exodus 29, wheat and flour. Mm-hmm. So exactly specified the first time yeah. so that we knew from there on yeah. what exactly was. So you're saying to us that the Lord Jesus had no strong points. And he had no weak points. <laughs> That's what gives the unevenness for us. Precisely. Yeah. yeah. Just on the fine flower, I was going to say that even to ponder great men, Moses was meek, Peter was bold, Paul was learned, Timothy was timid, but the Lord himself, I do always those things. In the volume of the book, Satan cometh and findeth nothing in me, no irregularities, just perfection, no imbalance, perfect harmony. God could say, this is my beloved son. Yeah. Wouldn't it have been great to be a disciple? I've often People say it's wrong to go backwards. We should be looking forward to heaven. But I, I think I would give quite a bit to just spend a day with the Lord and see what perfect humanity looked and sounded like. Brother. In verse number two, we have the handful of flour and the oil with all the frankincense. 
and the priest shall burn the memorial of it upon the altar. Does that mean that all the frankincense is burned upon the altar? It does. Now, when we come then, I don't want to take you down yet, but I want to point this out. Whenever you have the oblation, bacon in the oven, you have the fine flour and you have the oil and whenever you come to the meal offering in the pan, the fine flour and the oil and the meal offering in the frying pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. There's no mention there of frankincense. Uh, any reason why? Well, I, you, you, you're a man that's worked with the offerings for years. I'd like to hear what you have to say. I have my own thoughts, but I'd be very interested to hear what you have to say. Well, if I were where you are, I would give you my own thoughts. <laughs> but since I'm a member of the audience, I think I'm entitled to ask you to comment on my contribution. Well, that's very gracious of you, brother. I will comment then. <laughs> what, what, uh, 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 my, my view is this, that I do not think that the, the fact that the frankincense is not mentioned does not mean it's not there. Uh, I know a lot of people maybe wouldn't go that way, but there's a lot that is left to implication in this chapter, and I, I find it difficult to imagine, I could be wrong, that the frankincense is lacking in this. And I think we are to assume that if it is true that it is present in connection with the fine flour, if it is present in connection with the green ears of corn, my own view is that it is probably present, though not mentioned specifically, in connection with the cakes and the wafers. But I can tell by the look in your face that you maybe think something different from that. Uh, that's an interesting view that you have given, but it doesn't solve my problem. Right. Well, I think it's there. So you think it's there? I think it's there by implication, yeah. By implication. In, in other words, I'm still not convinced. Anybody else now on the platform that has anything to tell us on this? No, I, I was just going to say, brother, I'll, in connection with what Mr. Nesbitt mentioned, for example, in the first form of the offering, Mm -hmm. uh, verse, verse 2 it says memorial of a sweet savour yeah. and then in verse 9 it says a memorial burnt sweet savour then in verse number 16 it says memorial no sweet savour mm -hmm. so do I think because the sweet savour is not mentioned in the third case that there was no sweet savour precisely I think there was a sweet savour Mm -hmm. And do I think because frankincense is not mentioned in the second case that there was no frankincense? Just as I think there was a sweet savour in the third one, even though it's not mentioned, I think there was frankincense in the second one, even though it's not mentioned. You're a useful man to know. <laughs> <laughs> now then, uh, the oil, we've not said anything about the oil. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to ask another question about the fine flour. Yeah. It's consistent. Yeah. Could you tell me practically what that means? The Lord Jesus was gentle sometimes. 
He seemed to be harsh at other times. How is that consistent? In other words, what was he consistent to? And therefore, how can we be consistent? Yeah, that's another great question. Because you see, you know, we, 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 we sing, don't we, in our hymn, Gentle Jesus, Meek and Mild. Now, that's all right. But there were times when the Lord was angry. And justifiably angry at what he saw. Now, we mustn't confuse the, the, the softness of the flower with weakness. The consistency of Christ was that he ever and always did those things that pleased the Father. He never deviated from that track. In whatever circumstance he was in, no matter what pressure he was under, he always did that which delighted his Father's heart. And to that extent, I think, he was consistent oil can we, can we have a word, a word about oil Brother. yeah Alan in, in John's gospel just to work out what you've been saying there practically in, in chapter 6 he said I'm the bread comes down from heaven yeah. links in with the fine flour no lumps yeah. never coarse but the Pharisees strove among themselves mm. and yet in John chapter 8 he is so solid uh, and he tells them really forcefully mm. that you shall die in your sins mm. and where I am you cannot come. Mm. So we see the consistency of the fine flower yeah. and yet we see the salt of his nature yeah. and, and it worked out practically in John's Gospel. Yeah, that's good. You see, sometimes we make the mistake of assuming that the, the best men in the meetings are the men that never say anything to you that upsets you. Now that's not right. Sometimes the best men in the meetings are the ones that do annoy you. Because they're being faithful to you. They're trying to help you. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I mean, I'm, look, I've been in the meetings in fellowship now for an excess of 30 years. And I can remember occasions when people spoke very straight. And they upset me. But looking back, I'm glad that they did. And that is faithfulness. That's the idea of consistency. They're not, they're not going to... If they think God's honour is at stake, they'll tell you. And that is a, a, a fine quality to have in any man. Now, can we please, please, have a word about the oil? Because we need to bring the spirit in here. William. Just, just before you leave the fine flower, it's worth observing that in... I don't think we'll leave it, but maybe just move on to the oil. That in Genesis chapter 18, uh, one of the first occurrences I believe of fine flour when Abram hastened onto the tent onto Sarah mm -hmm. and said make ready quickly three measures of fine flour kneaded and make cakes upon the earth upon the earth. Isn't it wonderful that it was to the woman who was kneading the fine flour for the Lord mm -hmm. in the tent mm -hmm. who heard those words Is there anything too hard for the Lord? May the Lord help our sisters with that. Yeah. Christ is for us all. And we sometimes get the idea, and, and uh, we minister by the brethren to the brethren, with the male species in view. There is the, the, the Christ is for all of us, and the enjoyment of these things is for brethren and sisters alike. Now, Mr. Nesbitt. Is it, is it too soon to bring you to the oven, and to the pan, and to the frying pan? Now, I take it that pan to be somewhat 
more like what we call the griddle. Indeed it is. Okay. Yeah. Is it too soon to bring you... No, I'd be there? grateful if you did that because we can speak about the oil in connection with the wafer and the cake. So please carry on. No, but I'm waiting on you to uh, comment right. on what's the distinction between the oven and the pan okay. and the frying pan. Okay. Well, if, uh, if I were there, I would tell you what I think, but I'm expecting you to tell me what you think. Well, I can hold it for a couple of minutes, yeah. or maybe you want to go ahead, or if well, you just come in with your comment, and no. then I'll move on. Uh, uh, so that, that we've thought about the fineness of the Lord Jesus. Would I be right in suggesting that the oil would speak about his freshness? Mm-hmm. There was an energy. And the frankincense would speak about his fragrance. Mm-hmm. So all of those are involved. And the salt, as uh, down the chapter, speak about his faithfulness. If you want, you've already mentioned that in your opening. What I was wondering just here, is there any significance, do you think, that each of these three ingredients that you've been speaking about in the composition of it, flour, uh, uh, frankincense, and oil, the flour, the table of showbread, the frankincense, the altar of incense, the oil, the lamps, so that the three ingredients of the meal offering represented the major features of the sanctuary. Is there any significance in that, do you think? I think there is. And the other thing that occurred to me as being significant was uh, looking at the offerings and the practical purposes to which they were directed. Um, You have in the offerings a complete diet for the priest. So, in, you look at, um, for, for example, in connection with the shoulder, in the peace offering, the meats, the cuts of meat that the priest would get, and the, the nourishment that that meats bring to the body. And then you've got the carbohydrates, the bread and the cake and the oil. Now, that's a balanced diet. Okay. So, what, what, I'm, what I'm, I'm, I'm getting at in response to you, yes, I agree that uh, there is a, a connection, but the other connection that I see is that in, in these ingredients, God is providing that which nourishes the priesthood. Very good. But what I was thinking was that all that God saw in the sanctuary, that delighted him, I'm talking about the heavenly sanctuary, mm. he saw all of that fully reproduced in a man, mm. here below sanctuary standards in mm. one life and one life. That's good. Alan and Brother Alan, there are <coughs> three words in relation to this uh, oil. Mm-hmm. Verses 4 and 5, it's mingled. Verse 4, again, anoint it. Mm-hmm. Verse 6. Are we right in connecting those with the three uh, sections, if you wish, of the Lord's life? The fact here of the oil being mingled as incarnation. Mm-hmm. And then I'm anointing Acts 10, the anointed Jesus of Nazareth. Mm-hmm. And then in relation to the, uh, the pouring, um, that brings us to God giving, not giving the Spirit mm-hmm. by measure. Yeah. I love I loved that, Brian. Um, we know from Luke's Gospel that the Spirit was active in the conception and birth of Christ as the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. We know that he was anointed by the Spirit on the banks of Jordan when the Spirit in bodily form as a dove came and abode in him. And Acts 10 tells us he was anointed with the Spirit. So I think the oil here, David has brought out another side of it, which is energy the energy of the Spirit, because I, I would take it, if you put a meal offering with the oil impregnated in the flour onto the flame, 
that that oil would be an agent that would produce a tremendous surge of, of, of light and heat as the flame came into connection with the oil. Take the oil away and that, that warmth, that light, that energy is lacking. So uh, just to bring these things together, I think, I think in the oil you have that divine aspect of the meat offering. It's not exclusively human. The spirit abode on him. And more than that, you have the energy and power that was evident in Christ's life and ministry. I was thinking, Alan, um, it speaks about, in verse number 2, his handful speaks in verse 5 about thy oblation, and later in verse 13, thine. Just thinking of the, 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 the fact that it doesn't say in verse 2 that it's an ephah. There's no, no, no commercialism here at all. It's the thought of his handful. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're living in a day when worship is, uh, is put in a commercial platform, and there's a kind of template to it, but mm-hmm. it was what that man had with the flour and the frankincense and the oil. And maybe there's young brethren and sisters here, and Maybe you don't think you've got much, but you've got a handful. Something of Christ, eh? And he's put into a, a, a picture here, bread, flour, oil, frankincense. Is that not beautiful? You think of what the Lord Jesus said about him being the bread of God which came down from heaven. He's given us thoughts of him. Your thoughts are precious to God. And that's what's coming out here. And it's a thought of personal responsibility and a personal grasp that's found in these personal pronouns. So the hand that was put in the head of the offering in confession is the hand that is now filled with Christ. And just an extension to our brother Craig's point, the handful, our own appreciation, but there would always be enough to fill the hand and there would be that left behind. We'll never exhaust them. Amen. Amen. Now I'll just say what I think about the, the oven and uh, the... Sorry. That's an important subject. Can I ask you, are we all 100% satisfied that his handful is the handful taken by the offerer? I thought it was uh, a priest. Uh, Am I wrong about that? I, I just wonder what Brother Craig said there. Uh, did he assume it was the offer? Or no, I think it's the priest. You think it's the priest? Yeah. <coughs> okay. So it's a priestly hand. Yeah. Uh, 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 there's, a, there's a verse in chapter. There's a verse in chapter six says, "Bring it to the sons of Aaron, and he shall take out his handful." So the sons of Aaron, it would seem, it would seem to be that. Yeah. Wasn't there a meal offering with no wine and no frankincense? You think the jealousy or uh, yes, it's just the opposite. Yeah, it's just the opposite. A life of sin. Yeah, there's no pleasure or perfume for God. One of the one of the sin offerings was like that as well. Oh, chapter yes. five. Yeah. And why is that? Why were those two things excluded? Just for the sake of the audience, there's no oil, no frankincense in the meat offering for the sin offering. Yeah. So, is it because there's nothing spiritual or nothing fragrant about sin? That's exactly yeah. it, John. Yeah. Exactly it. I, I, I'm interested in, in the oven and the flat plate and the, it's called a frying pan in the authorised version. Perhaps a saucepan or a pot might be a better way of, of rendering it. Um, now, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what I think about it. I'll just say what I think about this, George, and I'll let you come in. That's good, right. One, one of the characteristics of the offerings is that in the Levitical code that governs it is that God, God provides for the, the means or the circumstances of his people. So that if you come over to um, the sin offering, you'll find that he begins by dealing with the, the high priest and with the ruler 
And then he will, at the end of that section, he will deal with the ordinary man. And what God is doing is ensuring that there is nobody kept from his altar. All may come, and he makes specific provision to enable all, whatever their circumstances, to approach him. Now, I think that that is what you have in view here. The oven, I know there were, there were apparently semi-portable ovens, but the ovens usually in Scripture are ovens that catered for large households. And I, I think probably what is in view here is a means of baking or cooking that has in view the rather well-to-do man with a, a, a prosperous circumstance. Then you come down to the flat, the griddle, which I suppose your ordinary household would have. And then you, mo- you come down to the most humble of utensils. A traveller making his way through the wilderness on his own, he would likely carry with him a little pot just to boil up some uh, food on. And he would carry it. So I, I see in these various um, uh, accoutrements here a hint of what is more, comes, is more developed later on in the book, which is God seeking to provide for all people in all uh, walks of society. George, you wanted to come in? Take you back to the... You will. But, uh, I will. I, <laughs> I think I forget what I was going to say. Uh, the flower, it's not flower. I hear some of the birds saying flower. It's not flower. It's fine flower. Yeah. Same as gold. You're getting the fine gold. Yeah. You're talking about the oil. The oil's poured. Mm-hmm. It's no sprinkled. But there's not a grain or a bit of the, of, of the fine flour that's not drenched yeah. in the oil. Yeah, that's Thank good. You. So the, 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 the oil speaking of the Spirit so wholly saturated the offering as to be indistinguishable from it. So, so uh, you're taking on the practical side of things, brother, on the griddle and so on, more or less to be the same as the bullock and the lamb and the turtle dove, yeah. God making provision for it. Yeah. Well, now, in the typical, in the typical sense then, mm-hmm. how do we move from, from the, the, the uncooked flour and so on in the earlier part to these, uh, these baked, what does that indicate to the person of the Lord Jesus? Well, the way, the way I'd seen it, David, was this, that in, in this... Um, little section, what, what you have in mind are the experiences to which the flour and the oil was subjected in the course of his ministry. The oven would have been, I would judge, the most intense heat when temperatures would soar to very high levels. Then you have uh, the, uh, the, flat, the flat plate or the griddle where again uh, there would be heat, direct heat applied, not ambient heat, but direct heat applied, and that again is linking you with the, I judge the experiences of Christ through which he passed, and similarly when you come down to uh, the, um, the saucepan or the frying pan, again you're looking at the, the tremendous difficulties to which our Saviour was exposed in his life and ministry. Brother Sam. Through the New Testament, we can appreciate the beauties of Christ, the perfections. On the other hand, those of Moses' time, what could they see by way of Christ in this, or is that something to be revealed in a later time? 
That is a, a, a very interesting question. I mean, what, what we do know is this, is that in the prophets, for example, Isaiah 53, <coughs> the Spirit of God is giving his ancient people, Israel, insight into what the suffering servant would endure. And, for example, pouring out his soul as a trespass offering for sin. And I think there are indications in the Old Testament that in these offerings there are anticipations of Christ and the suffering for sin on the cross. But I think that we have a huge advantage over them because we have the substance and we're able to interpret them in the light of that. So that in the Old Testament it was given at different times and then different, like to say, uh, different parts Indeed. and looking forward to the new, but they wouldn't have had the same appreciation I agree as we that. have. Yeah, I think we have a f- greater light, brother, Sam, than, than ever they had. I think so. Yes. Thank you. So, so j- j- just a, um, the question that Mr. Nesbitt was asking earlier, this oven and griddle, oven baked and griddle toasted and pan fried uh, meal offering. This, this is what the meal became, would you say, Brother Alan, when human hands touched it. In the first section of verses 1 to 3, it's just flour and frankincense, just in its intrinsic purity. That's what the Lord Jesus is in himself. But now we're thinking of what people made this flour. They could make it in an oven, round cake, or they could boil it, they could bake it. So am I right in thinking that what we were considering a few minutes ago is what the Saviour is in his own character? Now we're getting illustrated for us what he became as he made contact with men. I would completely agree with that, David. Would you see that being in its most explicit form in the years of his public ministry? I mean, it's not just that he was exposed to tremendous temperatures or heat, if you like, but um, the, the cakes are pierced cakes. And that word pierce is used uh, in the Old Testament scriptures in connection with wounds that are inflicted by the spear or the arrow. And not only so, the wafers are broken. So, in, in, in this little section here, I think we are given to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ before he went to the altar and the flame of the altar brought forth that frankincense, before ever that happened, there was a tremendous weight of suffering that he bore on our behalf. Um, so, so, so yeah, sorry, Brother Brown, you have two fires here. Mm-hmm. Are, are you implying? There's the fire of the altar mm-hmm. that corresponds to Calvary, mm-hmm. but there's the preparatory fire of the oven or the pan or whatever that corresponds to the pressures and suffering in the life of the Lord Jesus. Mm. That's how I see it. Brian, do you agree with that? I think what David was saying in relation to it being raw and uncooked, that's Christ intrinsically. Mm-hmm. And then we come to these three. We have the oven, mm-hmm. we have the griddle, and we have the frying pan. Mm-hmm. Taking that, that the death of Christ is only in the meal offering by implication, then we can't take the oven to Calvary. Mm-hmm. I take it the oven is the life of the Lord Jesus seen only by God. That's his first 30 years. Mm-hmm. Then we come to his public life. Yeah. That is the griddle. <coughs> He's opened this for everyone to view. Mm-hmm. 
Then there's a frying pan, which is really a griddle with a little lip around it. But only some can see that. I take that to Gethsemane. So it is now all related to the life of Christ. Yeah. That's lovely. There are, uh, there are a number of very precious things. I do agree with you completely that the fire of the oven is not to be confused with the fire of the altar. Mm-hmm. Two different things. I thought, I'll need to change my mind when I hear Brian and you. I thought the oven, nobody else saw what went on in the oven. So God would see that, and we're talking about the priest taking his handful. I thought God was taking his handful in the three hours of darkness in the oven. Mm -hmm. Alan, there's there's just one more thing. Mm -hmm. The taste changes. Mm-hmm. in each one of these cooking methods. Mm-hmm. So there's something for the priest to enjoy as well. Mm-hmm. And maybe we could just pull things together from what our brethren have been teaching us and what we've savoured of Christ, mm-hmm. that maybe the priest's appreciation at different times would be just varied as well. Yeah. I, I, if anybody knows me, they will know that Alan Summers and kitchens do, do not belong in the one sentence. But what I've discovered is that oil was the Old Testament equivalent of maybe butter. You know, we want to cook a thing in... Have you been to restaurants and they don't put butter in your food? You feel like handing your money back at the end of the day. Any food worth the name of it, as you all know, is cooked in butter. It gives it flavour and a texture that it wouldn't otherwise have. Now, the oil, I think, is the Old Testament answer to the butter that we use in cooking today, it, it gave, it gave uh, Brother Elton, it gave a flavour and a quality. Uh, sometimes it's poured on, sometimes it's mingled, a whole variety of cooking techniques, David, of which I know absolutely nothing. Have you had your cholesterol taken? <laughs> <laughs> I think we should move to the next version. I think we should, David. <laughs> I'm going no, to turn that question around just, you. just in connection with what, what our, our, our brother Brian has said there, I take, I take the, the uncooked to be the Lord Jesus, if you want him, for the want of a better term, at Bethlehem. Mm-hmm. Just the Holy Spirit come upon thee, that holy thing that shall be born. <coughs> Impeccable holy humanity arrived in planet Earth. That's verses 1 to 3. Then I took the oven to be the secretive the secreted hidden years. And in that oven, an oven slow cooking, as you know, Alan, at least that, that was a long period, the 30 years. There were round cakes and there were thin cakes. Isn't that the idea? In the wafer. So that in the 30 years, there was a roundedness seen in the life of the Lord Jesus. All the pressure of living in a village like Nazareth. And there was a thin cake he was just the carpenter's son. So there was humility and a roundedness in those 30 years. Then in the next one, the, the griddle, verse 7, it was made, a griddle is just like pancake type of thing, and parted in its pieces. I took that to be every, every part of the Lord's life that was analysed in this public ministry. Mm-hmm. And then in the third one, verse where are we? Verse 7. Sorry, the griddle is verse 5. The frying pan is boiled in oil. Like a, what we would call a dumpling. Actually cooked in oil. Deep fat frying. 
That's the Lord Jesus in the pressure of Gethsemane at the Mount of Olives, the place of the olive. So, you may just smile at that, but that's how I see it. A perfect development right through from birth, silent years, into his public ministry, right to Gethsemane. And I'll not tell you what I think the rest is until we get there. We'll get to, we'll get to that in a minute. I know I enjoy, you see, the, the great thing about the offerings is that I think everybody can appreciate it in their own individual way. The way maybe it appeals to me is not exactly the, maybe the way it appeals yeah. to them. But it doesn't mean I'm wrong and you're right, or you're right and I'm wrong. There is Christ's in it all, and we should seek to get the benefit of it. Brother Al, now that the baking is sorted out, could you tell us how and when the frankincense is added? To, to, the the o- to, the, to the offering at the different stages yep. for example is any of it go to the priest at the end or is it all on the altar how, how in the yep. handful then yep. do you manage to get the frankincense added well, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because it's, it's one of the most precious features of these offerings is that the frankincense was brought uh, by the offeror now that is, by the way is why I think also you've got a, a, a condescendence in these offerings, I, I would judge the most expensive of them was the first one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The second one was a, a rather less costly one to bring. And the third one were the green ears of corn, which I would judge a, a poor man could bring. Now the frankincense was added to these when the memorial proportion, portion was put in the altar. Now the beauty of this is this. In, in, the, in the burnt offering, it's called a sweet savour offering or a sweet aroma. But if you've been standing at the altar and looking at it, you would have wondered from a human point of view, where is the sweetness in that? As the pall of smoke rose up towards heaven, as the flesh uh, was uh, consumed on the wood, and you wonder, where, where is the fragrance in that? And yet, in the abandonment of the one of whom that burnt offering spoke, there was a delight to the Father's heart. But when you come over to the frankincense, there's no difficulty appreciating the sweetness of that. The minute that frankincense, the grains or the granules, touched, touched the flame, a great cloud of incense rose up. And you know, it's a tremendous thing. I believe with all my heart that there was a fragrance about the death of Christ, if one may so speak, that had not been there before. There was a thing that the Father got in the death of his son on Calvary's cross that was not there before. There was a fragrance and a beauty about it that we will never truly understand. Calvary didn't impart the fragrance, but it released released the the fragrance. So that in the the flour, the oil, and uh, the salt, and there's some other one that I'm missing. All of Sorry. Frankincense. Uh, no, the, the flour and the salt and the oil are all edible. Mm-hmm. Frankincense was never eaten. So, as you have said, I think it's telling us that in the death of Christ, there are things a priest can eat, or in the life of Christ, there are things a priest could eat, enjoy, Christians, believers can enjoy them, but there's a dimension of eternal delight to the person of Christ that's only for the heart of the Father. The Father only glorious claim the son yeah. can comprehend. Amen. Yeah. I believe that with all my heart. Alan, just the order is worth, is worth just pausing on. As the brethren have been making their contributions, it's quite clear that there's a, a beautiful order about the person of Christ. My fingers in 
the rod that Aaron budded, and you, you remember the expression there, it was budded and brought forth buds and bloomed blossoms and then yielded almonds. And many have enjoyed the incarnation, the life of Christ, and then the almonds, the death and resurrection. As Vernon will be making their contributions on the oil, we've been speaking about the, the, the mingled oil, then the anointed oil, and the poured out oil. Again, the order's coming out. And now he's been speaking about the oven, and the, pan, and the flat plate, and then the frying pan. We're seeing a beautiful order of those years of obscurity. Think of that verse. From that time forth, Jesus began to preach. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Canaan of Galilee. Can we believe it, that there was 30 years of obscurity, and moving on to his public ministry, and then moving on to, the, to, the, to that partial understanding that we have of the sufferings of Christ as he moved to Calvary. Really, it's Philippians 2, isn't it? We'll be there on Monday. But it really, it's that journey, isn't it? Up to Calvary. And we're getting, getting a picture of the beautiful life of Christ being brought before us in an orderly fashion. So what did I learn then? My worship really should be orderly. As I, as, I, as I worship the person of Christ. Yes, the, the, the Holy Spirit, we must never imagine that the record of Holy Scripture is in any way haphazard or random. There is an order there, if only our eyes could discern it. Now, I want to get on to the lack of leaven, because there were ingredients that were stipulated, and there were two ingredients that were specifically prohibited. And we come to the first of those uh, down in verse number 11. No meat offering which you shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven, for ye shall burn no leaven nor honey in any offering of the Lord made by fire. Now, one, one thing that I hold to is an article of faith is that the Lord Jesus was sinless. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I personally, and you may chide me for being hard, I don't know. I, I think a man that thinks that the Lord could sin, I, I, would, I would nearly question his salvation. Now, maybe, I'm, maybe you think I'm going too far in saying that, but I cannot understand why anybody could possibly think that one that was intrinsically divine could have sinned. And that, I think, is why in the offering here, It's not merely that as to his deity he was incapable of sin, but in his humanity he could not sin. So, a lack of leaven here. Now, we're we're grateful to the New Testament, really, for giving us full light on on what leaven symbolises. Now, Brother Willie, have you anything to help us with? I'm glad you've touched upon the holiness of the humanity of the Lord Jesus. Adam was sinless. Adam was perfect. He was innocent. But it's never said that he was holy. When we come to the person of Christ, that holy thing that shall be born of thee shall be called the Son of God. And I'm satisfied that true holiness can not sin. Inherently, it possesses the ingredient that is ever repellent of evil. And you mentioned anyone that believes that Christ did not sin, but that he could sin. If I were an overseer, I would strongly object to a person like that being received into assembly fellowship. And I would be totally opposed to a person who believes that taking any part in public ministry in any form. I completely agree with that. It's, it's, it's serious. Just sin. shout that out that everybody hears you. Agree I agree with, with my brother Nesbitt completely. 
Well, ju- just <coughs> just in connection with that, brother, I'll slightly going back, but it's, it's, it's linked. There's an expression in verse three. It is a thing most holy, and then you get it in verse ten, just before we mention of eleven. So it is a thing most holy, holy of holies. Have you anything to say that that expression occurs in connection with the meal offering and it occurs in connection with the sin offering? Well, I, see, I, I had wondered, as you know, um, I mean, I, I do accept uh, that... We, we, would think, we would think that's the very expression to put with a burnt offering. Yeah. It's most holy. Yeah. It's the top of the list. Yeah. But it's not put with it, it's put with these other ones. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, I, as you know, that the, the, the idea of holiness in the Old Testament develops in the New Testament into something that's got far more to do with moral and spiritual, whereas in holiness in the Old Testament has principally got to do with the idea of being something set apart for God's use. Now, I accept that in that setting apart, intrinsically, absolute holiness is required. So I, I had thought that the reason why it is most holy uh, is a kind of a little phrase that runs through these offerings. It's got, the, got to do with the idea of these offerings being set apart, consecrated by God to a specific purpose or object. Okay, so that it doesn't come in with the burnt offering because none of it was eaten. But these offerings were a portion was eaten. There was always a possibility that a priest or whoever could forget himself and downgrade it into common food. And he was told, no, these have to be set apart for God. But in the person of the Lord Jesus, he's not only most holy at God's right hand, He's most holy, as you have said, in his life. And he's also most holy when he's buried sin upon the cross. Amen. So Amen. his sinlessness wasn't compromised by becoming sin for us in Second Corinthians. Amen. William? In that connection, <clears throat> in verse 11, he says, No meal offering which ye shall bring unto the Lord shall be made with leaven. For ye shall burn no leaven, nor any honey, in any offering of the Lord made by fire. The two words for leaven, I'm sure you've noticed, yep. they are different. Yep. And the first one, as you probably may well be aware, is the word which means the process of leavening. Mm-hmm. In fact, we get the modern Hebrew word for oxygen or oxygenation from it. And as we know, we get sugar, like honey, then moves to alcohol. The children who do chemistry will know that. And then it goes to acid. So overall process of fermentation or the process of, in the biblical doctrinal sense, of Corruption. Now, isn't it interesting that the first word here is the process of oxidation or leavening, the process of corruption. But the next word, and this is what is to be missing, for ye shall burn no leaven. That's the word for yeast. Same word in English, but they are different in the Hebrew. So one is the process, which speaks of the process of sin, but the second word, leaven, speaks of the potential of sin. And it would appear here that uh, this verse very clearly shows that in every sacrifice made by fire, which I believe exclusively speaks of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus, Mm -hmm. that there's neither neither potential Mm -hmm. nor process of sin. He could not sin as he did not sin. Amen. Now, in, in just to kind of move things along, because it's 22 and I want to get down through this chapter, um, can I say in connection with the honey, that actually a lot of the problems that William has described arise in connection with the leaven, that, that is aptitude to ferment, um, are issues that you have with the honey. Now, I think that there are two things that arise out of the honey. I'll be with you just in a minute, Willie. First of all, um, I w- 
salt, when it's exposed to the flame, does not combust. Honey, when it is exposed to the flame, it, I'm, I'm told the technical term is it caramelizes. It, it does respond, it blackens, and ultimately a pungent, rancid odor is given off by the honey. So although it was wonderfully sweet in life, so to speak, whenever it's put in connection with the fire of the altar, all of a sudden, something that's pungent and unpleasant is brought forth. Now, you see, I think there's a lot of practical teaching in that. You know, you and I, we may be the model of sweet reasonableness in our lives. But whenever the temperature's turned up and we're exposed to a bit of difficulty or suffering, all of a sudden another aspect to our nature is brought forth. And we think qualities that you would never have thought possible existed in a man in the right circumstances, all of a sudden, are brought forth. And that was why there was no honey about the Lord. There are plenty of ordinary people, Alan, who have a natural sweetness. I mean, in the world, apart from Christians. But the test is when you bring the gospel to them, they, they just completely change to a different person. You know, the honey we were taught in earlier days that Leaven represents the basest and worst of nature, and honey represents the sweetest and finest of nature. But none were allowed on the altar. Exactly. Willie? Thank you. <coughs> Just a few general comments. We've been reminded God never expects his people to bring anything to him that's not available to them. This was an agricultural nation. All these things were available to them. But unlike us, they had to work with the ingredients before they presented what was acceptable to God. They had to make it fine flour. They had to put it together. God has given to us, and we were reminded of this, many of us would hang our heads in shame. God has given us a perfect Christ. We don't have to work on it. We don't have to do anything of it. But as we've been reminded uh, forcibly just now, and I would add my amen to these comments that have been made, we must have a proper scriptural appreciation of the beauty, the perfection, absolute perfection of Christ Amen. before our offering would ever be accepted before God. Amen. Thank you, Willie. Just something. Sorry. Go ahead, Mark. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, on the honey, honey is very tasty. And we could add that to our worship, which would be appealing to the flesh, yeah. but it wasn't acceptable to God. And we could add that to our worship, which would sweeten it as far as men's tongues are concerned, yeah. but it would be of no value to God. Amen. There's too, far too much honey about us, brethren. We're far too bothered about massaging our egos and, and not offending. You know, just a little bit of plain speaking goes a long way. That's why the salt is so important in, in these offerings. If... if, if, if Things, things are ignored and glossed over that need to be brought out into the open and dealt with. And I think this offering gives us ample encouragement to do that. No, I was just going to say, in the normal baking of bread, to make it palatable and very tasty, they added honey and leaven. Leaven flavoured it and, of course, honey too. This offering didn't need that. Instead of the honey, something better. It was frankincense. And instead of the leaven... There was something pure that was salt. So here's something beyond the normal, exceptional. You don't find this every day. 
and all speaking about the distinctiveness of the yeah. Saviour. I noticed that this morning, David, when I was uh, trying to get uh, prepared for these readings, that white, the colour white, runs down through it. You've got the, the whiteness mm. of the flower, mm. labona, which is the frankincense, is, is white mm. in colour, and the salt, yes. white again. Very good. So a, the idea of purity runs right down. Mm. I was thinking, Alan, that uh, there is another development here, isn't there? With the things that are absent in verse 11 and the things that have to be added in verse 13, many saints can appreciate what's absent in the life of Christ. We enjoy it, don't we? In him is no sin. Who did no sin? Who knew no sin? Mm. He, said, <coughs> he said, the prince of this world cometh and shall find nothing in me. We rejoice in what's absent. But remember, his enemies too could understand that. This man had done nothing amiss. There was understanding even by the world of the things that were absent in the life of Christ. But there's a development here. As believers, we can think of what's added in and we can come to the salt. And so there's nothing turgid or infected in the life of Christ. He's absolutely holy. He's incapable of sinning. But we can also enjoy that holiness and righteousness and love. And indeed, we must come to the salt soon of the things that are added in to the life of Christ. Yeah, well, let's do that. Let's think about the salt right now. This is verse number 13. In every oblation of thy meat offering shalt thou season with salt. Neither shalt thou suffer the salt of, thy cover, of the covenant of thy God to be lacking from the meat offering. With all thine offerings thou shalt offer salt. The salt of the covenant of thy God. Now what you find in scripture is salt is regularly linked with covenants. That is to say, mutually binding uh, promises or agreements arrived at not only between human parties, but between God himself and man. Now the reason why salt was associated with covenant keeping was that it was a, a substance that preserved and kept when other substances like the honey and uh, others uh, corroded, eroded um, and, and, and corrupted over time the salt remained. And so what we, we have you see is when God brings salt into a thing what he's saying is, you can rely on it. Yeah. A covenant of salt. God will keep his promises. So you've got the idea of, of the absolute probity of Christ. And alongside of that, the idea that Christ in his life and ministry was a preserving influence in people. I, I, it isn't interesting how when after the Lord physically was taken from them, after he led them those three, three and a half years, the disciples fled into the night. That which had kept them had for a short time gone. And Christ is that which keeps and preserves his people. Alan, could I ask a general question? Mm. In the early verses of the chapter, verse 1 to 3, we had the inherent excellencies of Christ. Mm -hmm. And then you led us on to the experiences of Christ. Yeah. Where are you leading us to in this latter part of the chapter? In connection with the, the green ears of corn. Uh, first fruits and so on. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'll, tell you, I'll just tell you what I think about it, and then you can shoot me down. I, I don't mind. I'm shot down all the time, so it makes no difference to me. First fruits, um, I link with the resurrection of Christ. I think that is why... It says in verse number 12, As for the oblation of, thy, of the first fruits, you shall offer them unto the Lord, but they shall not be burned on the altar for a sweet savour. There is no idea of Christ having to go back to the altar. He is risen. So it doesn't go near the altar. The first fruits link with Christ 
in his resurrection. But, now this is where I maybe differ from some of the dear brethren here, I think, myself, that the first fruits that are mentioned in verse 12 are not any old first fruits, because first fruits of honey and, and grapes and olives could all be offered. I think the, the first fruits in the four walls of this chapter is, is the first fruits of the wheat or the barley harvest. That is the first fruits that's in view. So that, when you come to verse number 14, and if thou offer a meat offering of thy first fruits, in my judgment the same thing is in view, thou shalt offer for thy meat offering of thy first fruits green ears of corn, dried by the fire, corn beaten out of full ears. So I think what you have here are the ears, the green ears, in the first fruits, that fits, because the green ears are or belong to the first fruits, that's where they come from. The first fruits don't go to the altar, but the green ears of corn, I link that with Christ in the virility and the freshness and the power of his resurrection and the humanity associated with that. That goes on the altar with the frankincense and the salt. Now that, that is how I understand it, but maybe others would differ. William? I agree with you totally on, on that, Alan. Oh, do you? Uh, and... Uh, in Psalm 110 we read from the womb of the dawn thou hast the dew of thy youth uh-huh. the person of the Lord Jesus Christ emerging forth as it were from the womb of death he used that metaphor also in John's Gospel chapter 16 uh, he stands forth in all the splendours of holiness with the dew of his youth this is the uh, person of the Lord Jesus Christ in his uh, resurrection glory and the earlier section I take it is his life lived uh, and the pleasure that brought to God, this is his life taken again, resurrection, and the infinite pleasure that brings to God as well. This same Jesus. Yeah. So you, you, you're, you're, you need a wee bit of a disagreement here. I, I knew it was coming. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't see it that way, but that's, that's, all right. that's maybe a problem with my eyes. <laughs> Not with, uh, the first fruits, just, just sort of a clear, uh, just uh, before I get into this, verse 12, Brother Alan, what do you take as for the oblation of first fruits? Yeah. Now, I'll tell you what I think. I think sure. it maybe is different from yours, but you can enlighten me. No leaven, verse 11, no honey. Mm-hmm. Don't put them in the meal offering. But, if you want to bring leaven and honey for first fruits, they're acceptable. You shall offer them as first fruits, so they're acceptable. Now, that's one word in Hebrew. To way. Now we're on to a different word in verse 14. A meat offering of first fruits. The first fruits, this is very closely linked with the word for firstborn. Mm-hmm. It's not so much the head or the beginning of a sequence as verse 12. Mm-hmm. It's the firstborn. Mm-hmm. Green ears of corn, fresh and green. And even though they're not fully yellowed, mm-hmm. surprisingly, they're full ears. Corn beaten out of full ears. Now, I take this to refer to the judgment hall. Right. And standing in that judgment hall, beaten and despised, and the fire of criticism was a man, in all the virility of his manhood, in all the maturity and dignity of his manhood, never had been the likes on earth. So we have started with Bethlehem, verses 1 to 3, the hidden years, the public years of the griddle, Gethsemane in the frying pan, and now that same man standing beaten, buffeted by the Jews, scourged by the Gentiles, dried by the fires of persecution. He stands in all the... Full, they do this in a green tree, he said, in Luke 23. I'm the green tree. And he goes to the cross then, goes onto the altar for the glory of God.
So I don't see this as resurrection and then coming back. Uh, I, I see your point. Yeah, I'm not going back though. You know, the green ears of corn is the virility of Christ in, uh, in oh, resurrection. Oh, surely. But yeah. then they were put on the altar. Yeah, that's the difficulty with it. And how you can have Christ standing in the life of resurrection and then going to the altar yeah. is a bit tough in my theology. Yeah, yeah. I think he's standing beaten in the halls of judgment, meek, dignified, full ears of corn. And then he goes out to the cross. Yeah. To but that's no, well, I'll just tell you why I, I, I differ from you. And, uh, sure. I, I mean, I do know that some of the more modern translations follow that translation of the, the transition between verses 12 and 13. But the difficulty I have is that the green years of corn are linked with, it's the month of Abib, as you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, and that is the, the earliest indications of the harvest to come you've got the green ears in the, in the shocks of wheat or barley whatever it may be, it would be barley in that case See, in, to my mind that provides a, a very powerful link with first fruits mm-hmm. and, my, and my understanding is that when you come to Leviticus 23 which is the corporate side of first fruits for the nation there as opposed to the individual here it, that is so strongly linked in the New Testament with resurrection you see, that, that is what makes me it's go off in that yeah. direction. But, you know, your, your strong point is that it's what is the fire of the altar chronolo- doing there? Chronologically. The chronological order falls apart a little bit. All right, but the canonical link makes yeah. it the first fruit. So so I, 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 I see the portion of what you're saying, but my mind sort of takes me off in a slightly different direction. That's great. Brother, brother Alan, the only quantity that we have in this chapter is the handful, and our brother Craig has brought us to that. Mm. Could you tie in for us now Numbers chapter 15? I know in your opening you mentioned about quantities. Yep. Is Numbers 15 for only when they went into the land, or is it implied in this chapter? Well, I, I don't think it's implied in this chapter. There's way, way too much in Numbers 15 to bear the burden of implication. I mean, it's a significant step forward in how uh, the, the offerings are to be understood. I, I find, found it quite difficult to date Numbers 15. I did worked quite hard at it and was unable to be certain in my mind as to when the provisions of number 15 were given but it seemed to me probable that at some point midway through the wilderness experience that number 15 was given but I, 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 my Bible reading is in Leviticus 2 you know, so, and that's where I rest it's, it's the truth taught in this chapter that I'm primarily interested in Oh, and I, I see a development here from salt through to the first fruits. It's not interesting that verse 13 is sandwiched between verse 12 and 14. Mm-hmm. And that may help see where I'm going with the first fruits. You see, in the salt, you've mentioned the idea of preservative and you've mentioned the idea of the, the taste and the seasoning, which is obviously taught in the New Testament in Colossians and also in, uh, by the Lord in Mark 10. But there's another little verse in, in Mark 10 and it says these words concerning salt that every... Um, sacrifice shall be salted with salt for everyone shall be salted with fire mm. and there's a thought within salt that goes beyond the two things you've said where mm. we all know uh, that, um, that if you add salt to water the boiling point goes beyond 100 it intensifies the heat and we all know it's got latent heat properties and if you, put, if you, if you just watch salt on a flame it intensifies the flame intensifies the heat due to its latent heat properties and um, I see something of the intensity of the, of the suffering of Christ here so, David, I'm going, actually, to the resurrection in verse 14, you see, right? Okay, because I'm seeing a development. 
I see in verse 12 a bracketed clause, to be honest with you. It's referring to, I think, Leviticus 23, particularly the Feast of Pentecost. It can't be offered on the altar because it's got leaven in it and it's got honey in it, quite clearly. So I see in verse 12 bracketed. So what is to be offered? Well, the first fruits. What first fruits would that be? That would be the first of the first fruits. That would be actually, in my view, on the Lord's Day, on the first day after the Sabbath. That would be the, that would be the first of the barley harvest. And I'd see it, I link, I link it with Christ, the first fruits. And to get around the problem with David, you've been referring to being resurrected and going back on the altar. The way I see it is the, the connection between the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, we can't separate it. And the Romans says that he was delivered for our offences and he was raised again for our justification. So I see the life of Christ going on into the future. But I take the point, this is the conundrum we have of going uh, the, back. The, the <coughs> word for first fruits in verse 12 is the head, and the main idea is priority, others to follow. Whereas the idea in first fruits in verse 14 is not the head, it's firstborn, it's preeminence. Not so much others to follow. Mm-hmm. It's not the idea of a sequence. It's something distinctive, preeminent, out in a class of its own. And I was thinking that's what the Lord Jesus was in the fullness mm-hmm. of his humanity. But that, that's just fine. I'm thinking of the expression, salted with salt. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that salt is a preservative onto that eternal punishment? Preservative as well as punitive. Indeed. Salted with salt. What does that mean? No, uh, salted with fire. With fire. You mean, you mean that the fire. fires are preservative? Yeah. 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 I think so, brother. It's a, it's a fascinating statement. It's in Mark's Gospel, isn't it? I can't chapter nine. Just put the. It's there's a whole variety of views in it, but I think I think that salt and fire come together in the offering, and I think what you suggested may well be correct. But am I correct in thinking that eternal punishment is preservative as well as punitive? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah that's good. Amen. Mm-hmm. Sorry, sorry, this is outside this chapter, brother. If you see the time, you don't want to deal with it, no problem. But you've emphasized that the priest, this was the food for the priests, so on and so forth. In a later chapter, it's emphasized that if they were going to enjoy this and eat this special portion, it had to be done in a holy place. Uh, if you don't wish to develop it any further is there an an implication that if we are going to fully enjoy Christ and all that he was and is we need to be living lives that are practically holy Amen I'll tell you another thing I thought about that it's not not just that the priest ate um, in the precincts of the tabernacle the sin offering as well they ate in the precincts of the tabernacle but the general point I, I get from all of that is this is that spiritual things are best enjoyed within the confines of the house of God. The assembly is the place where yes. Christ can be enjoyed. Mm-hmm. If we're enjoying him at home and not enjoying him in the meeting, something wrong. Mm-hmm. We, should be, we should have a heart for Christ yeah. when we gather as the Lord's people together. They, they enjoyed the food of the altar. That's what it's called, isn't it? The food of the altar. As they stood. They didn't, I don't think they ever sat down to eat. I don't think they were allowed to do that. I think they ate standing respectfully in the tabernacle. Now, time is nearly gone, and I just want to deal with the last verse, and that will be us all over. Verse 16, And the priest shall burn the memorial of it, part of the beaten corn thereof, and part of the oil thereof, with all the frankincense thereof. It is an offering made by fire unto the Lord. Just one little point I want to make, and that, that will be my uh, part over the memorial memorial works two ways 
a little bit, the, I think the wave offering and the heave offering for the priest coming before God and seeking as it were to draw God's eye to his son here on earth. And we still do that, don't we? As priestly men and women, we seek to attract the eye of God down onto the person of his beloved son. I think that is probably the idea of the memorial as well. We're bringing before God that which, if one may so speak reverently, reminds the Father about the delight that is to be found in his Son. It is the memorial portion. Mm -hmm. And more than that, brethren, it's not just God that delights in him. You and I delight in him as well. Is there anybody in Scripture that can can compare with the person of our beloved Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our memorial. So, so the token that was put on the altar was just a reminder to God of a far greater totality that was behind it all. It was a handful. That's all that it was of something far bigger. Well, brethren, that was a uh, great... I'll do that. I want to express my appreciation to all the brethren. I have to tell you I was nervous before this Bible reading. Uh, but uh, the nerves have now settled now that it's all over and I do appreciate the help that you all have been to me I'm going to give thanks uh, and now for the food and closing prayer Our Father we do thank thee for our time together we thank thee for the subject of these Bible readings and we thank thee for the spirit of harmony and good nature that has characterised our discussion we thank thee for the Lord Jesus that we have been thinking about the one who was the fine flower that one anointed with oil. And we bless thee that we are like those that were on the road to Emmaus, that he himself has drawn near and he has unfolded to our understanding uh, Christ in all the scriptures. Our God, we thank thee as well for thy kindness to us and providing materially for us in the form of food. And we offer up to thee our heartfelt thanks for thy kindness towards us in Christ Jesus and in the recurrent provision of these daily mercies. We offer up our thanks to thee in the Lord Jesus' name. Amen. O Lord, when we the past